Guardian Unlimited. Questions to the Prime Minister, Dr. Ian Gibson. Mr. Speaker, sir, before listing my engagements, I'm sure the whole House will join me in sending our condolences to the family and friends of the Royal Marine from 4-5 Commander who was killed in Afghanistan yesterday. He was doing as I saw when I met the troops there some days ago, an extraordinary job, and we can be very proud of him. In addition, I'm sure the whole House will join with me in paying tribute to the two members of the East Sussex Fire and Rescue Service, Brian Wembridge and Jeff Wicker, who were killed tackling the fire near Lewis on Sunday. They died protecting their community, and our thoughts and prayers are with their families at this time. Meetings of ministerial colleagues and others, in addition to my duties in the House, I will have further such meetings later today. Dr. Ian Gibson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm sure we all enjoy the sentiments uh, expressed by my right honourable friend. I'm tempted to ask my right honourable friend if he would bring the, back, uh, the boys back home by Christmas, but even with his powers, I don't think the English cricket team uh, would agree to that. <laughs> more serious note, perhaps. Could I say that last Thursday there was a large meeting of the all-party cancer group over in the Queen Elizabeth Hall, which was well attended, and at that meeting the Minister of Health made everybody feel really well and good about uh, cancer treatments in this country for the future, in which she announced a new cancer strategy. I think that was uh, welcomed by patient groups, by charities, by clinicians and so on. And I think that's very important, but would my right honourable friend also agree that giving information to patients from early diagnosis right through to palliative care empowers them and gives them the choice that we desire? I think my honourable friend is absolutely right to emphasise the importance of keeping patients fully informed, uh, especially in the very difficult circumstances where they're diagnosed with cancer. And he's right in pointing out that, of course, over the past few years there's been enormous progress. We're spending not just around about £600 million more, but there are 1,500 more consultant posts. But most important, we now have almost 100% of people seen within two weeks by a consultant when they're suspected of having cancer. That's up from two-thirds um, a few years back. And as a result of the cancer strategy, which we're now taking forward in the way that he indicates, there have been around about 50,000 lives saved as a result of the improvements in treatment. And that is the National Health Service getting better all the time. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to the Royal Marine who was killed yesterday in Afghanistan. And can I associate this side of the House with what he said about the East Sussex Fire Service and the two brave men who lost their lives? Our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan are doing an absolutely heroic job in difficult circumstances, as I've seen for myself in both places. Yesterday, the new US Defence Secretary said we were not winning the war in Iraq. Does the Prime Minister share that very serious assessment? Of course. Um, in uh, July, I said myself that the situation uh, in Baghdad with sectarian killing was, was appalling and that the bloodshed was appalling. And what is important, however, is, as he went on to say, is that we do go on to succeed in the mission that we have set ourselves. Because the most important thing is to understand why this problem has come about. It's come about because outside extremists are linking up with internal extremists in order to thwart the will of the Iraqi people expressed in their election for a non-sectarian government and a non-sectarian future. And both in Iraq and Afghanistan, it is important that we build the capability of those governments and those countries to withstand the terrorists and make sure that democracy succeeds. 
We had a candid assessment from the U.S. Secretary of State for Defence, and my point is we want equally candid assessments from the Prime Minister. It looks increasingly likely. Looks increasingly likely. Yeah. That's right. We shouldn't just have to hear from other people. We should hear from the Prime Minister. It looks, it looks increasingly likely that the Baker-Hamilton report will lead to changes in U.S. policy. Can the Prime Minister tell the House of Commons today what he thinks those changes should be? Exactly as I described in the last time I spoke to the House after I gave evidence to the Baker-Hamilton uh, inquiry. And I think they, they fit into two categories. First of all, inside Iraq, what is important is that we complete the building up of the capability, particularly of the Iraqi army. For example, down in the south now, the Iraqi army are capable of taking on security in two out of the four provinces. Increasingly, they're doing so in Basra. We've got to complete that process. Uh, we've got also to make sure that the governance and capability of the Iraqi government um, is improved. That relates not just to the way the government functions, but also in relation, for example, to the disbursement of money, both in Sunni and in Shia areas. And then what is important is that we make sure that the process of reconciliation that the Iraqi Prime Minister has outlined is carried through and carried through with greater effect than so far. So that is inside Iraq and outside Iraq. As I said to them and have said to this House on many occasions, we have to pursue what I call a policy for the whole of the Middle East. And that means in particular and starting with um, finding a solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict, which I think is absolutely essential if we are to put that region on a more stable footing. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Of course we should discuss the Baker-Hamilton recommendations with our allies, and of course we should work with them as closely as possible. But the decisions on the future of British troops in Iraq must be taken by the British government in the British national interest. Does he understand that the British public do want to hear reassurance from him on that vital point? Look, of course we have got to decide this policy based on the British national interest. It has always been uh, my view that it was in the British national interest to remove Saddam Hussein, that it is in the British interest to stand shoulder to shoulder after 9-11 with our American allies. And at the moment, what is important is that we complete the mission we have set for ourselves down in the south of the country. Now, thanks to the work that the British troops are doing there in Basra, where the operation has been going on, um, bit by bit in Basra, to turn over control of security to Iraqi forces. They've now completed that, I can tell the House, and run about half of the city. There are then reconstruction and development projects going in behind that. That has been, I'm pleased to say, relatively successful. And if it is successful, of course, that diminishes the need for British troops to patrol in Basra. So our strategy is absolutely clear. It is to make sure that we build up the Iraqi capability, but we do so in a way which makes it absolutely clear to the people fighting us in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and elsewhere that we stand on the side of people who support democracy, and we stand up to terrorists and are prepared to fight them and take them on wherever they may be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaker, Prime Minister will know that for 30 years I have argued for the end of the Saddam Hussein regime, which killed so many of my friends. When my right honourable uh, friend meets President Bush later today, will he make clear that despite all the setbacks, we will continue to be committed to ending tyranny and upholding justice, whether in Iraq, in Palestine or elsewhere in the world? Well, I certainly will, and again, I um, pay tribute to my honourable friends' uh, steadfast support of those who favour democracy in Iraq and indeed elsewhere. And it is important, as she rightly implies, to emphasise 
that the people that we are fighting are Al-Qaeda linked up with Sunni extremists, Iranian-backed elements linking up with Shia militia. Those are the self-same forces that we are fighting in Afghanistan and in different parts of the world. And it is important, as we build up the capability of the Iraq, Iraqi and Afghan governments, that we send a very clear signal that our mission is to support those who are in favour of democracy, and we will continue to do so. Sir Campbell. Uh, I, join, I join with the Prime Minister in his expressions of sympathy and condolence. But the new American Defence Secretary also said that all options were on the table. Among those options is their phased withdrawal on the part of British forces. Let me explain again to the Right Honourable Gentleman. It is our strategy to withdraw as the Iraqis are capable of taking on their security. That has been our strategy from the beginning. That remains our strategy now. I assume he agrees with it. Let me say this to the Prime Minister. Isn't it clear that the British government has no policy of its own in relation to Iraq and that we are wholly dependent upon the decisions taken in Washington. What sort of strategy is that and what sort of legacy is that? It is precisely because we believe in supporting the Iraqi government that has asked for our presence down in the south of Iraq in order to make sure that we protect Iraqi people until the Iraqis have the capability of doing so, that we remain in Iraq. As progressively the Iraqis are capable of taking on their own security, as now they are doing in two out of the four provinces and in one half of Basra, and now we're completing the mission in the other half of Basra, then the need for British troops diminishes. That is our strategy. And I do say to the right honourable gentleman that it is very important, particularly at this moment, when British troops are doing an extraordinary job there in the most difficult circumstances, that we make it clear that the people who are fighting us down in Iraq, as in Afghanistan, are people we will take on and fight and defeat anywhere they are. Yeah. Ashok Kumar. Has my right honourable friend seen the early day motion 140, which is in my name and supported by members all across the House and all parties, regarding the treatment of the Hindu community in Kazakhstan? Only two weeks ago, 60 families were attacked and their homes were destroyed by the riot police. Given the situation as it is, most of them are homeless now and actually facing a very terrible cold winter. Will my right honourable friend talk to his friend, the President of Kazakhstan, and see what he can do for these victims who are suffering? Their only crime is that because of they hold a Hindu faith. Um, we have actually made our, I should tell my honourable friend, we have made our concerns clear to the Kazakhstan government. And of course he's absolutely right in saying that what is important uh, is to make sure, um, whether in Almaty or anywhere else, that people are free to practice their religious faith. And I can assure him we will do all we can on our own behalf and also through the NGOs with whom we're cooperating there um, to make sure that those Hindus who've been discriminated against in that way are properly protected. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. One in five children leaving primary school can't read properly. Will the Prime Minister confirm that this year's national reading tests, the results have actually got worse? Well, it, it is correct that uh, the figure is at 83% rather than 84%. But let me say to the right honourable gentleman that that is a huge improvement yeah. on the situation we inherited 
1997. And let me say one other thing to him, which I think will be of interest to the House, that though it is correct that at level four overall there is a 1% fall to 83%, the number of children within that that are now attaining level five, in other words, over and above what they're required to achieve, has more than doubled since 1997. So I'm grateful for the opportunity of pointing that out. And for the first time, in reading and in science, the number of children within the cohort getting to level five at age 11 is, is now almost 50%. So I agree we still have a lot more to do, but thanks to investment and reform under this government, much progress has been made. Doesn't that just show the complacency of the government? Yeah. Yes. Yesterday... Yesterday, the new head of Ofsted said the number of 11-year-olds who can't read is a national disaster. One-fifth of schoolchildren can't actually find Great Britain on the map. He may be spending extra money, but he isn't getting the basics right. Now let's turn to secondary school education. Yesterday, the Treasury, that's the, the home of the clunking fist, is not much of a... He's not much of a clunking fist. He can't even get rid of a lame duck. <laughs> yesterday, the Treasury said, yesterday, the Treasury said that more than one in six young people leave school unable to read, write or add up properly. Given that young people leaving school today have spent almost all their schooling under a Labour government, doesn't that show the extent of his failure? But he obviously not listened to a word I've just said to him in my initial reply. The fact is the results are hugely up since 1997. Those are the facts. And what is more, as I've just indicated to him, they're up now at level five to half of those people who, who, those kids who attain the right grades age 11 now getting to level five. That is a huge improvement since 1997. In addition to that, the number of computers in the classroom has doubled. In addition to that, age 14 the results are up, age 16 the results are up, age 18 the results are up. And as for what he said about the, the, uh, the, the chairman of Ofsted, the chairman of Ofsted actually said this. She said, things have considerably improved over the last few years. So I agree entirely there is a long way to go. Of course there is. It's not acceptable that any young child aged 11 doesn't get to the requisite literacy and numeracy. But it's a darn sight better than what we had under his party. What she said was it was a national disaster. Why don't we look at the five core subjects and how children are doing on those? If you look at who's getting five decent GCSEs in the core subjects of English, maths, science and a modern language, those figures have actually fallen since 1997. Now let's look at school leavers. In spite of the New Deal, in spite of all the money, in spite of all the pre-budget reports, the number of 16 to 18-year-olds who are not in employment, not in training, not in education, have gone up by 40% since he became Prime Minister. Why? Because the proportions of children going through the system have risen at the same rate. And therefore, well, and therefore however, however, it is absolutely true it is absolutely true that it is not acceptable and not right that we have any young person leaving school without going into education or training. But that's the very reason why we have the New Deal that helps young people into a job, but he's opposed to it. That's the very reason why we want to increase investment, but he's pledged to cut that investment. 
And when he talks about five good GCSEs, whether you take it as five good GCSEs overall or with English and maths, the results are hugely up again since 1997. So I can tell him we are very happy to debate education policy in, in this country today. Yes, there is still a lot more to do, but if we look back over the last 10 years, results are up, investment is up, schools are getting better, and anyone who goes to any school in any constituency can see the changes and improvement that has been made. And we are committed to increasing that investment still further. He now has a fiscal rule that means he would chop that investment by sharing the proceeds with tax cuts. So don't let, us, don't, don't, don't let us forget what the system was in 1997, how much improvement there's been in 10 years, and what a disaster it would be if the party opposite ever got their hands on it again. Sandra Osborne. Is the Prime Minister aware that the former employees of Chilterns of Girvan in my constituency were last week the first to receive payments from the Pension Protection Fund, signifying the fact that thanks to this Labour government, Never again will people be left with next to no pension when their company goes bust. But will we take time to look again at the financial assistance scheme for those who lost their pensions before the fund came in to see if they can receive the same benefits as the Pension Protection Fund? Well, we certainly, of course, um, keep the provisions closely under review. And as my honourable friend will know, the difficulty is there is a limit at some point to the amount of money we can put through this scheme. But actually by pledging literally hundreds of millions of pounds to help people who have lost their pensions through no fault of their own, we have for the first time in this country, under this government, at least some support, particularly for those of working age who are older, who are coming up to their retirement, and can find sometimes that all the money they put in, in 30 years of service, is suddenly lost. So I agree it's important we keep the terms of this scheme under review, but she's also right to say for the first time people do get protection under this government. Bernard Jenkins. Mr Speaker, can the Prime Minister explain why it is that economic growth under this Chancellor has been three times higher in the Republic of Ireland than in our own country? I don't know about a comparison, I don't know about a comparison with the Republic of Ireland, but let me give them a comparison between this government and the previous government. Well, I think it's rather... I know Tories don't want to hear this, but it's really rather more relevant to compare to compare economic growth in this country. Under this Chancellor, we have got the strongest economic growth of any comparable country. We have got interest rates, not the 10% that they were when his party was in power, but average half of that. The lowest inflation, the lowest unemployment for decades. And once again, I'd like to thank the Conservative Party for pointing out our record. Andrew Desmore. Last week, we celebrated the fifth anniversary of free museum admissions including at the RAF, Royal Air Force Museum in my constituency, which has seen a 50% increase in visitors, including from people who would never have gone before. Would my right honourable friend do what he can to encourage even more people to visit the RAF Museum? Perhaps he'd like to come himself. We might include you as well, Mr Speaker. And, uh, and would he ensure that our museum... Yeah. Apologise for interrupting the mid-flow. Um, I think I'm right in saying that there have been somewhere in the region of five million extra visits to museums since we introduced this policy. And 
honourable members opposite may try and disparage it. But the fact is this has been a major change that has allowed low-income families and particularly youngsters to gain access to our museums. And the fact that we have literally millions of people using museums and going and visiting museums is a wonderful thing for our country. We should be very proud of it. When the uh, Prime Minister visited the biofuel company Regenitech in my constituency last month, he received a pretty convincing presentation that the high level of duty on biofuels is discouraging their use. Given the huge impact increased use of biofuels could have on CO2 emissions, I wonder whether the Prime Minister has reflected on that presentation and has any proposals or ideas to increase their use. Um, Well, I think he will have to wait for for the budget for that. But, however, uh, let me say to him, though, that I think the presentation they gave to me was actually an excellent presentation. um, And I think that in order to encourage biofuels, it is important that we continue, as indeed the Chancellor has been doing over the past few years, to make sure that the system incentivizes the use of clean energy. And it's very important that we recognize that biofuels, particularly engineered in the way that they're suggesting, gives us the opportunity of reducing considerably the CO2 emissions we have. Margaret Moran. Is my right honourable friend aware that we are in the middle of the 16 days of action against domestic violence? Can I say that uh, women who are repeatedly beaten and repeatedly asked to go to court to receive a, uh, uh, to achieve an injunction say thank you? Thank you for the extra eight million which the government has just given to increase their safety. But could I ask the Prime Minister whether he would do more to increase the survivors of domestic violence safety by ensuring that supporting people funds are adequate to ensure that the refuge postcode lottery is ended so that survivors do have adequate protection when they need it? Well, um, first of all, I can, I can say to uh, my honourable friend, and of course she's absolutely right in, in describing both the progress that's been made but, but the challenge that lies ahead, that the remaining provisions of the Domestic Violence Crime and Victims Act, which was passed in 2004, will be implemented um, middle of, of next year. I, I should also simply tell the House, too, that on the latest um, figures that we have, and we've invested around about £70 million extra to, to, to tackle domestic violence, um, the domestic homicides are down, the numbers of guilty pleas are up significantly, and convictions of court, at court have actually quadrupled. Um, and one of the reasons why this is happening uh, is because there is far greater cooperation across the agencies now and a far greater willingness within our court system and amongst the police, obviously, uh, to take domestic violence far more seriously. Sammy Wilson. Sixteen years ago, the son of my constituents, Mr and Mrs Smith of Carrickfergus, was murdered in a car bomb at Newry Checkpoint as he rescued a man who had been strapped into that uh, van by the IRA. The families of those victims were told that the mastermind behind those bombs was a very senior Sinn Féin politician who was also uh, an intelligence source for MI5. The historic inquiries team have now reopened that case. Would the Prime Minister ascertain, first of all, if any intelligence exists as to the mastermind behind that bomb, and secondly, give the House the assurance that no intelligence will be held back to protect a senior politician or an intelligence source. I can assure him that that, that no information, whatever, whether intelligence nature or or any other information, will be held back from the proper authorities. Uh, I obviously can't comment on the particular case of his constituent, however. 
Gordon Marsden. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Will the Prime Minister warmly welcome, as I do, the significant report uh, by Lord Leach yesterday on the skills challenge that faces this country today? But could I also ask, I mean, because one of the things Lord Leach talks about is a focus on adult skills, which is very significant in constituencies such as mine, that that will be given adequate representation and the in the implications of it for funding adult skills within education over the next five years? Well, I can uh, certainly give my honourable friend that assurance. I mean, what, what is important uh, is that there has been a massive investment, obviously, in our school system with the consequent uh, results that I was pointing out um, earlier. But he's absolutely right to say that skills is a very important part of, of the challenge that we face. Already we've given hundreds of thousands of people more, I think over a million people more, access um, to skills and to qualifications, but we need to do far more. Uh, we have a situation in this country at the moment where still um, around about 7 million adults haven't reached or attained the, the uh, right literacy or numeracy grade, so it's important we go further, and uh, further education colleges um, will obviously be an important part of that, and indeed he may hear something to that effect later. Peter Love. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister is the only Briton, apart from Winston Churchill, to have been awarded the US Congressional Gold Medal, but he seems, he seems strangely reluctant to accept it. Go and pick it up. Why doesn't he do so tomorrow when he's over there actually meeting members of Congress and before the new Congress changes its mind? <laughs> well, um, I'm afraid even at the risk of such an event, uh, I have other things to do in my time in Washington. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Speaker. My right honourable friend will remember the meeting that we had with him in connection with the high cost of energy with the firms in my constituency. And will he congratulate Caledonian Paper on the announcement they made yesterday to change their energy needs? But will he join me in condemning Scottish Power, N Power, and PowerGen in the use of backdating and backpaying customers who use tokens? to get their energy needs. Absolutely. Well, I know uh, that uh, my honourable friend has got an early day motion on, the, on this subject, and I can say to him that uh, Ofgem is engaged in extensive discussions with suppliers as part of the supply licence review on how to tackle the problem while replacement of metres take place. I also understand that from the 1st of December, British Gas has stopped backdating prices for token users. But the point that he's making is actually a very, very fair one. I'm sure there can be a way uh, found round this, and I hope the discussions, therefore, between Ofgem and the suppliers yield the result that he indicates. James Dudridge. Yeah. 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 Does the Prime Minister expect to be interviewed under caution this weekend by the police? For very obvious reasons, I've got absolutely nothing to say on that subject. <laughs> Thank you, Mr Speaker. At last night's all-party age group meeting, at last night's all-party age group meeting, Martin Neary of Bernardo's explained to the group that there were 250 children in this country kept alive through NHS AIDS drugs, and those children are due to be sent back to their country of origin. Will my right honourable friend agree to meet a small delegation to find a way of ensuring? that the life of every child matters. Um, well, I'm certainly uh, happy to meet my honourable friend in any delegation that he has on, on this subject, and in the meantime, I will certainly look into the case and correspond with him. Lee Scott. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Will the Prime Minister please give an assurance to my constituents of Ilford North that there will be no cats in the hospitals of King George's or Whip's Cross? First of all, um, let me say to the honourable gentleman: I know there is a consultation on. I know there is a consultation on health provision in his area, but I would just point out that the funding for his primary care trust has increased by some 30% over the last three years. And in his health authority, whereas when we came to power, there used to be 50,000 people waiting over 26 weeks, there are now only two. And in every single aspect, health care has improved in his constituency. But I have to say to the honourable gentleman, that the investment that we have put in, his party opposed, they're now opposed to the reform also, and his party, above all other parties, has no credibility on this issue at all. Anderson. Will the Prime Minister agree with me? So, will we discuss with his cabinet colleagues a way in which we can help elderly people to pay the heating bills this year, given the unprecedented rise in energy bills, and can he consider having a windfall tax on the companies who have made these profits? Well, of course, uh, my uh, honourable friend will know of the £200 winter fuel allowance, £300 for those aged over 80, and we will continue to do everything we can to support the poorest pensioners. Um, and I hope very much that those companies that are uh, concerned and are supplying those pensioners take account of the fact that those who are elderly and particularly those living in poverty have special and particular needs. John Barrett. Yeah. The Prime Minister will be aware that the DTI will be making a major announcement next week on the future of the post office network, including the potential closure of many offices. Why does he prefer to invest millions of pounds reducing the size of the best retail network in the country rather than investing in new products, new products and government services which would ensure that these post offices will be open next Christmas? I just point out to the Honourable Gentleman that we are investing around about £2 billion uh, or have done um, in the post offices over the past few years. Now, for very obvious reasons, because of the, um, the way patterns of behaviour change, particularly in respect of pensioners and bank accounts, post offices face a, a challenge. Now, we are sitting down with them trying to work out the right way forward. But I think it really is unreasonable to say that we have been cutting back support for post offices. On the contrary, precisely in order to protect post offices, we've been increasing that investment dramatically. Guardian Unlimited.